What's up, everybody? Chris Graham here alongside Ben Carswell, Christian Jasper, James Watson, Jason Owens, Mike McCullen. Welcome to a special Road to Indy edition of the Pizza at the Pagoda podcast. And oh, do we have a show for you. We're going to kick things off talking about the last weekend here at New Jersey Motorsports Park for USF 2000 and Indy Pro 2000. We'll talk a little bit about the Indy Lights series as well. And we're going to round the night out with our first guest interview. Absolutely. The, we recorded this about an hour or so before the rest of the podcast. Absolutely fantastic interview with Miles Rowe, winner of USF 2000 race number two up at NJMP, driving for Force India and the um, diversity and inclusion programs started by Roger Penske and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, th that This kid is so darn cool. We can't wait to share that interview with you. But first, we'll start things off as always. Uh, Mike McCullen, what are you drinking? I am drinking a fine Gopel Kolsch from Cologne, Germany. Sure. That, that sounds expensive. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel it's like delicious. I gotta. I feel like I gotta pay my rent just to hear the name of that. <laughs> Man, I just paid my rent, so I don't, I can't even afford to hear the name of it. I got nothing in the bank account right now. Oh, that's awesome, Jason Owens. What are you not drinking? Uh, I'm mixing it up. I've got a a Brewdog in a nanny state tonight. In a, as in, in a, a what? As in, in non-alcoholic? That would be correct. I'm so sorry to hear that. Lame. It's <laughs> way better than the uh, <laughs> strawberry mango seltzer water I was sipping on today. So the, I was gonna say the purple Powerade that Watson's gonna have in front of him. <laughs> uh, I'll have you know that it's actually lemonade, good sir. How dare you? Oh, there you go. See, look at that. Two birds, one stone. We don't even have to ask him. Uh, <laughs> Christian, what do you have in front of you tonight, brother? Oh, only the most alcoholic of drinks of Dr. Pepper, because all my Sapporo is gone. <laughs> Apparently, all your Sapporo is in front of Ben Carswell. Uh, you, cup cars have giant-ass spallers, and you got giant-ass cans of Japanese beer, huh? Listen, the more giant, the more better. That's going to go on a t-shirt somewhere. Pizza at the Pagoda. More giant, more better. I feel like that's a bumper sticker. <laughs> that is a sticker that should be on every one of our fake race car liveries. <laughs> yes. Uh, I am over here sipping a Fathead's Brewery Bumbleberry Honey Blueberry Ale. Fancy for you. Wow. Yes. Are you, you feeling okay? Uh, that sounds really good, though. It sounds great. It is actually fantastic. I caught a ton of hell from my wife and kids on our family vacation that you can only have chicken parm in Miller High Life so many times when you go out. So I had to get adventurous. Oh, God. I, I found one that doesn't suck. I found a lot that did, by the way, but. 
that's an entirely different story. All right, let's recap the Road to Indy New Jersey Motorsports Park weekend. Uh, what did we have here, guys? Well, we had Ben and Mike out at the racetrack, along with Chris Kresge doing absolutely fantastic work on the photo side of things, gentlemen. Um, so a total of four of us out there over the span of the three days. And we had, what, five races in two days, basically? Six. Six. six races. Yeah, six. We all beat the traffic. That's <laughs> the sixth one. Uh, yes, we... Yes, we did a bail before the final, what, Indy Pro 2000 race, I guess. And the only reason we bailed on that one is because they were going to run the Radicals again for the 11th time that weekend. Uh, basically, <laughs> a lot of Radicals. <laughs> yes. Hey, rich guys pay a lot of money to pretend race. <laughs> yes, they the do. The racing was pretty good. It, there it was, was some, actually good racing. It was pretty good racing you could really get a good draft in those things they were doing some pretty good moves but yeah too much too much radicals now the other the other one that and maybe we can talk about that well we can talk about it here is there something else that fits better on that weekend rather than i mean obviously a lot of radicals coming in the door is going to pay a lot of bills for that weekend but is there something else that might be a better fit i mean last year MX5 Cup was there. Now, that might have been on the bill because it was at some point an IndyCar sanctioned series. I know it switched to IMSA last year, but they were probably already on the on the schedule. So it kind of makes sense that they fell off, but there's got to be something other than Radicals that is a good series to pair with, with this. Because it was just... I mean, it... The car count was kind of low, so it didn't really help, but it's a series that nobody's heard of. Nobody knows the rules of it. Nobody knows what the classes were. Nobody knows what the cars are. We're all looking at each other going, these things are cool, but this is a three-class race? What are the classes? How do you know what the different cars are? Why are the drivers in the middle of some of these? Why are they on the left and others? Why are they What the hell is this? What a, I didn't why, know they had classes until you why told do they me have, that. Why do they have different colored headlights? Like, what is this? It's just, it's something that is, just makes no sense to have with your your feeder series. Now, I don't know what else they could bring in. Lights? Well, no, if they be. wanted to emulate the iRacing world, they should just stick Formula V in front of the other two series. <laughs> <laughs> uh, worst idea uh, you know what i would be willing to bet formula v's around njmp in the real world would be pretty spectacular um i think the issue that maybe comes up with some of those is are you going to get a decent car count i think that has yeah. to be a very realistic consideration for the, the promoter standpoint for the folks over at njmp I haven't watched this race that they that happened, but ARCA East did a race out there. Um, happens to be the only ARCA race that our combined favorite driver, Ernie Francis Jr., ever did. But they did a K&N Pro Series East race, which is now ARCA East, out there. And I feel like if you're going to have two open-wheel, you know, downforce-focused classes there... Maybe adding radicals with all their arrow and gigantic wing isn't the best idea. Maybe you want to go for like this, you know, 
maybe the MX-5 Cup or giant stock cars or, I mean, even mods, modified cars on the road course. I think the one thing, the one issue with anything is paddock space, because that's not a huge paddock. And not, not that Road to Indy takes up a lot of space, but between the garages and, you know, with USF 2000 and Indy Pro, most of the garages, I think, were, were pretty much full up. I think they had the Radicals guys working under uh, under a couple of tents off to the side. So, um, yeah. you know, there, there's always that space consideration when you're at when you're at a smaller racetrack that's, you know, not the world's biggest paddock, although they had plenty of camping space they didn't seem to be using, so... I have a great idea for him for next year. So I, I don't know if anybody caught the Troy Riviere um, Grand Prix where they ran big block mods on the road course. Bring all those northern New York guys down, throw the big blocks on, on the track, and call it a day. I, I guarantee you people would love to see that. I it might I mean it would be a decent show on the security cams but you know that might be a there. bit of a culture shock for the RTI kids could you imagine like Tico Porto like <laughs> big black a 350 mod pound big black mod driver who's got a shaw the size of Brazil in his <laughs> oh my god Hi, okay, now I will say this. I am in the heart of big block modified country. Um, I am, there's a reason we call them the mud turtles. Uh, with that being said, though, that race at Trois Rivières was fantastic. I would love to see them run the big blocks. The problem is you're going to have to pay them a ton of money to get them out there. You're talking probably something along the lines of ten or $15,000 to win. Which it also, yeah. it's not so, a very wide course. I think I've got a business, a... a business idea. First, I hit Powerball. And <laughs> I put together a big block mod touring road course series on all like Road Atlanta short and Lime Rock, and that'll just print like seven dollars a year. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, the pearl clutching at Lime Rock would be amazing. Uh, just for that. That would. That would. Are you sure you haven't been drinking tonight, Jason? All my best ideas come when I don't drink. That's terrifying. It's a, it's a oh, pity they're not like farther south. You could bring like late models out there. Uh, you know what? I would. I was class wheeling mods. <laughs> Big block mud <laughs> and around Lime Rock, and God we'll call him. it like uh, yeah, like Bimsa <laughs> or something. Like just make up a name. <laughs> no, no, this is Yeah, some things that just don't work in the real world. Sorry, James. He's just describing next month's TNT special event. It's all right. Yeah, way spill the beans. All right, so it, Jason did make the segue for us here, um, and and we'll get the ugly part out of the way early in the show here because there's just too much positivity to come later. What are our thoughts on the broadcast quality? Um, on on companion race weekends with the IndyCar series, 
NBC's cameras are there. Now they're locked in position, so you don't get man operated cameras, but you do have, you know, 4K quality broadcast cameras handled by the switcher and everything else. It very much looked like the broadcast from the NJMP races this weekend were done with basically security cameras. Well, Stan we Lee was sitting in the booth, like, switching the security cameras around, right? On the feed, like... We had enough phones between us that we could have fired up our iPhones, each stood in a quarter, and probably done a better job with the broadcast. I was really finna ask you're, what broadcast, not, honestly. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't call that a broadcast. I'd call that a feed. They, like, the, the road to indie series, even the indie light series, as small as their fields can be, they don't get they they don't get the respect that I feel like Indie Lights does get NBC now and it is on Peacock and it is Kevin Lee and Charlie Kimball broadcasting it with the whole NBC camera crew and graphics and all of that and it's actually a super quality broadcast. It, those those Indie Lights broadcasts on Peacock now are fantastic. They are totally right. fantastic, but there needs to be some waterfall to Indie Pro and USF because, candidly, one of the best passes you'll ever see, nobody got to see in its totality because of the fact that we don't have... There's no cameras. There's no cameras. Like, could you imagine, like, in Europe, like, you know, guys trying to get to F3 going and running F4 and there being no cameras and making a like a career defining pass and it the only thing that captures it is a GoPro on the roll hoop. That's absurd. I mean, but, so, but here here's the thing, and, and it all comes down to what everything in racing comes down to, and that's money. Who pays for this? Right? Road to Indy isn't spending a ton of money on media. Like the media center at NJMP was six tables, a printer fax machine and a refrigerator full of water and, and that's what we got as for media so they're not spending a ton of money on media so if you want to start rolling in people with camera crews who have to wire the whole thing you've got to have people on site you have to have the ability to get that feed out we're talking money that a lot of that they, they just don't have especially at that venue on that weekend yeah so, i get it I, although like I, I get that there's costs there but i also think that there you need to look at it from an abundance mentality and you know i don't know if there needs to be like pinsky or indycar steps up like these are the future stars of tomorrow they're it's not the road to daytona it's not the road to like retirement it's the road to <laughs> indy Oh, absolutely. I, we need to be building the stories around the future stars of IndyCar when they're at this level, not just wait till they get to lights and then have a fantastic ride. No, I, I fully agree with you, right? You guys are going to hear later our conversation with, you know, a driver who has done something remarkable in you know, in the history of open wheel racing in the United States at any level. And the only video of it is GoPro from his car. And that's, I mean, can, let's, can we be completely realistic here and say there are micro sprint and go-kart tracks that are getting better broadcasts than USF 2000 and Indy Pro 2000? There are. I agree. 
Not just well, micro sprints. There's flat track carts running on dirt and pavement, and hell, even syrup uh, in the winter that are getting better broadcast than than Road to India is. Like, that's not okay. Like, I regularly watch like the IMSA, the, the track pass stuff, and like Langley, and all of that. They have an easier time because it's it's just like four tenths of a mile. But I think this is more of an NJMP thing than it is a road to Indy thing. I can accept the fixed cameras. I can accept a lot of that. But it's the it's NJMP. It's a club track. You know what I mean? Like this is not. I okay, but I'm I here's here's where I would I would counter that argument by saying a place like St. Pete, Toronto, Long Beach, etc. Those are easily the most difficult broadcast to put on from a production standpoint because you have to run a ton of wire, more so than what you have. NJMP as a club track, I don't see any reason why they don't have fixed camera positions, pre-wired camera positions. It, honestly, it wouldn't be that. I mean, I could lay out the wiring in my head right now that you go out to turn one, you go out to turn uh, three by the chicane, come to turn five, and then you run up that little alley that we only could walk through on a cold track all the way down to turn eight, nine, ten, eleven complex, camera there. It's easy. You only need four if you can move them around. Otherwise, you add a few more. But I think, honestly, the, the part of this is, too, is that they're essentially just screen capturing the timing feed, the raw timing feed, not like yep. a graphics package. They're just it's just the raw timing from the software and they're just sticking it up there. No, it's, it's not, not even that, that raw. Hard. It was only updated every five seconds. It wasn't even a raw feed. Yeah, exactly. So why can't we take the first small step and let's put an actual graphics package? in place i mean they have people here's well here's here's why i well but here's here's part of the reason why you could theoretically produce that race at njmp even using the static cameras you're probably talking a minimum of three people you need one person whose job it is is to monitor the network connection out and handle any troubleshooting on any gear all weekend long. You need a, a tech director whose job it is is to push the buttons. And you need a graphics person whose job it is to make sure that the right headshots are with the right people and throw the right graphics at the right cuts and everything else. It's not as iRacing is very easy to produce as one person because the software exists to make it very easy. The real world is is a little bit different because in order like I can switch cameras on an iRacing broadcast by clicking on a driver's name and I instantaneously get that driver. Well, that tells the graphics software who I'm looking at so it knows what battles to shoot and you let the algorithm do its magic and run the math. The real world is is very different and is fairly complex. Right, but we are talking Road to Indy, which is put on by Anderson Promotions, which on their website has Road to Indy TV. T 
TV production, IMS Productions. And as we've talked about on this podcast, IMS Productions is one of the biggest TV producers of sports media in the world. And they've got to scale. Not just biggest. Yeah. Anderson can spend a little less money on hotel rooms at the track and a little more money on publicizing the future stars of IndyCar. I like the hotel comment. (laughs) (laughs) Not even going there. Uh, Yeah. Oh, they know. For everyone else, sorry. Yeah, that that will be a story over beers some other time. I'll, I'll say it this way. I would offer our services at cost, no profit in our pocket. That's this is one of the things we do on the National Racing Network, and it's it's there. It's one of those things that the barrier to entry is so low. If this was 15 years ago, I would say you're talking about a million dollar, million and a half dollar custom trailer that you have to have built out. The reality is you could probably produce these broadcasts from the back of a Honda Pilot. It's actually not that crazy to do anymore. I mean, if you look at the the video encoding issues they had at Lucas Oil earlier in the year, I, I don't know that it's a stretch to say that they're actually broadcasting it out of a Honda Pilot at this <laughs> Someone's hot spot. Uh, I no, think that's that was totally that was a local processing issue with how poorly that was encoded. And the, like it was a visual bitrate issue and it was bad. And luckily, I haven't seen that again the rest of the year. But like that kind of stuff can't happen. I think that's the bigger issue is there's there's a difference between wants and needs. And we want a crew of. 200 to produce the shows like we get for IndyCar. The reality is you need a serviceable broadcast. And one of the biggest moments in the history of the road to Indy ladder was missed last weekend because they didn't have a camera in turns eight and nine. Would also like to point out that NRN almost had a camera over there. Except that I'd move back up to turn five. Yeah, except the knucklehead who would have been behind it decided to move. <laughs> Some moron. Yes. I was by the Miles Row fan section, aka his family. So that was a moment. Uh, I have a story from that if we have some time. Later. Yes, let's let's get to some of that stuff a little bit later on here. Um, it, looking at things, let, let's go back now. Let's start talking about the positives here. Um, six races run over the course of the weekend and a grand total of zero full course cautions in full wet conditions at varying points throughout the weekend. These kids and, and young adults were pretty darn impressive out there behind the wheel yeah i mean just they came you know the, the couple of races that were were very wet and you had them coming up start finish you know fanning out you know five six seven wide it looked like a pocono start and really neatly tucking in and going you know two wide up the hill into two maybe fanning out a little bit three wide but there were a couple of bent wings and a couple of broken wings but nobody wadded up a car. Nobody really did anything of 
note, I think we had one car at the end of race two for USF that ended up in, or I know it was Indy Pro. Um, it was the 30, I don't remember which race, but one of the races, somebody got, Pro. somebody got yeah, stranded in the, you know, you know, in a runoff and they local yellowed it. It was incredibly clean racing, clean and respectful racing that it, at that level is impressive. It was super um, impressive. I think the only thing I noted watching on the broadcast that made me chuckle was when both uh, Hunko's cars went off in five. Yep. Both Hunko's cars went off in five. You had a couple of guys spinning coming out of the pits, and that's something we should probably talk about is the These way that... doing their first live pit stop. Yeah, the way that the Indy Pro and USF does wet race starts is something they might want to reconsider because it just... You essentially have to start a lap behind the safety car on wets, and then after everybody takes the green, you can come in and change to slicks if you want. And even then, you're limited to three guys over the wall. There's no air jacks. They're not set up to do pit stops. So the gamble to change tires is a huge gamble. And I think it puts teams at a disadvantage if it's a smaller team. One of those things that I've, I have never seen in a live pit stop before was teams using impact guns, battery-powered impact guns. Okay, no big deal. That's not a big thing. Every one of them had a torque wrench with them and an official watching them torque the wheel nut to spec before putting the little safety cotter pin back in. That's not something that should happen in a live pit stop. And someone was penalized for not having torqued and put the pin in. I did hear that over race control. Somebody was penalized and had to come back in for proper torquing and putting the safety pin in. That's that's not a live pit stop. If you're going to go that route of saying, okay, this is a wet race, then call it a wet race. And if the track dries out to the point that it becomes a safety hazard to be on wets, throw the full course caution, bring everybody down pit road and say, you're going to leave pit road in the same order you came onto pit road. Yep. I think that is even, even in the radical race that, that started dry and finished in the wet, they red flagged it. The guys ran out to their cars on, you know, a, uh, on pit road. They changed their tires and they sent them back out and they got two green flag laps. I think they got a green flag lap or two. They got, you know, so even radicals said, hey, we're not going to force these guys to do live pit stops. I just think it's it's a strategy call, one, that a team shouldn't have to make, and two, they're not equipped to do it. And if they're going to say, hey, you've got to torque your wheels to spec Quite and literally put a safety not equipped pin to in, it. it just it doesn't make any sense. But you're, you know, you're disadvantaging the guys that, that don't take the gamble because they say, hey, this is a bad idea. And, you know, if you're disadvantaging the teams that, you know, some of these teams are running out of very large haulers. Some of these teams are running out of very small haulers on shoestring budgets. And, and it's not something that should happen at this level. You shouldn't have to have, like, a race strategist say, all right, I think it's time to come in for slicks now, or I think it's time to come in for wets. It's got to be run at the series level because they don't do live pit stops any other time. 
Yeah, I think that kind of defeats the point of spec as well. Like, they don't have spec crews and equipment. They have spec cars, though, and that's kind of the whole point. And when you bring... We talked about it at the track that one team had their uh, truck provided by Penske, another one had theirs rented from Penske. It's a difference, and you see that in the pit stops. And and let's also make note here that they, it was not a rented tractor trailer from Team Penske. It was rented from Penske Truck Rentals. I mean, that's yeah. that's the difference. I mean, literally, you, one team had Ricardo Juntos calling strategy on pit lane. Which team was that? <laughs> The yes the 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 Force Indy team, it's it's the little things that you notice when you're wandering pit road. The Force Indy team had two people working behind laptops that both have nice big Team Penske stickers on the back of the laptop. Yes, there are there are differences. There will always be haves and have-nots. But I don't think you need to have something like the force indie team and, and granted this did not play a role in miles win whatsoever, but you don't want to have the perception that, Oh, well it's cause your guys did a 14 second faster pit stop than my guys did. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's at this level. It just shouldn't be a thing They're First of all, they don't press. So there's a safety thing too. They don't practice live pit stops at all. Uh, no. They don't do them in any other race. So you've got them. I saw numerous, maybe not numerous, but I saw a number of guys spin coming out of the pits. I think it was in race three. Miles spawn, a couple of other guys spawn coming out of the pits because cold tires, they're pushing. That pit exit at NJMP, actually, you come off the limiter, and then there's a turn that they've got to negotiate that before they get shot out into the racing line. So it's not a safe thing for them to do either. So they don't practice it. I full well thought I was going to die when on when the first of the cars came down pit road. He locked up, corrected. He started to, and I don't remember which car it was, started to dive for the wrong pit box. Turns hard left, locks it up, turns hard right, punches the gas, then locks it back up again. All I could see was flying hand tools and tires when this kid slid sideways into his box. That's not, I, I don't know. There, there's just something about it that strikes me as we're unnecessarily putting crew guys in danger. These are not helmeted, safety-geared crew members like you have in the IndyCar series. Uh, some of these crews were guys in T-shirt and jeans helping out for the weekend. It just seems like there's a lot of risk for not much reward that goes on there. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone who did pit ended up worse off than they started. And the, there's such short races, they didn't have an opportunity to even try to crawl back through the field. I mean, I think so. I, and I don't know. I don't have great timing data that I can go back and look at. But it didn't feel like to me, you know, in turn one, seeing that the guys who pitted were making their way up the field. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know if that strategy call worked or not. Uh, we we did have a couple of first time winners this weekend uh, in Roe and Siegel. That was a ton of fun to watch those crews and, and families celebrate in victory lane. Um, 
Porto obviously was, he was on another planet in race number one. What are, what are we thinking here? I'll say it this way. I think the future looks pretty darn bright talent wise. When we look at the names running up front in USF 2k this weekend. Yeah. Porto was sensational on race one. I mean, I, I was out there and then you'd watch Porto come by. Then you'd wait a second. Then, um, some Dara Morthy, Yuvin, and, uh, who else was it? Um, Pearson. Pearson was up there. Green was Pearson, up there. Green. De- oh, no. Uh, Brooks, D Orlando, and Green. Those are the four with Yuvin that were five or six seconds behind Porto and just not catching him at all. Yeah. And then Porto another eight seconds one. behind him. Porto finished race rest? one five seconds up. Right, it, it was it was incredible to watch, particularly in turn one, in that first race when it was hot and greasy. There was such a visual difference between the way Porto and kind of the other top two or three cars took the turn in and almost controlled the rear end slide down into one versus the way the guys in the back half of the field had visually the lockdown rear taking the turn. Yeah, and they were doing that a lot. And and when it was a little hotter on Saturday, you'd see them at one and you'd see them into the chicane, almost come into the chicane at three, light lift, little bit of break, slide the rear just a little, and then punch it, catch it, and shoot through the chicane. It's incredible to watch them get that right. And if they got it wrong, then they ended up taking a little trip through the grass. But as it cooled down on Saturday, because Saturday afternoon for the race was cooler and overcast than Saturday morning for qualifying and completely different than Saturday, than Friday. Friday was heat index of over 100, super humid. I think any data they got from Friday was completely useless for them because of the whole weekend complexion changed dramatically from Saturday, but you could see them being a lot more slidey on Saturday morning and in, in practice and qualifying, and then that complexion changing for the race on Saturday, then Sunday, obviously, with, you know, sun and rain and, and drizzle and mist. and That was, never... that was really cool to me, too. Sunday, they, USF qualified at, like, 9 on Sunday morning, and it was, I want to say, 70 degrees and overcast, and they were trimmed out. Yep. And those, those were some flat rear wheels. We were watching them roll out to that false grid there before they went out, and we're just like, whoa, they are trimmed. And race two was coming up that they qualified for Sunday, and I was over there on the, on the grid doing a little walk around and speaking to... Um, Wayne Rowe, who is Miles' father, talking to him about that, he said, I don't know what's going to happen because he qualified this morning in gripped up dry, cool conditions and now it's soaking wet. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen here. And obviously, what happened is his son went out there and had one of the best races period I've seen in a while because he just absolutely put on a clinic. Yeah, and, and he every time around in race two, he tucked right in in front of the, behind the guy in front of him, and right coming into the the breaking zone for one, 
He'd pop out, come up the inside, run up the inside, side by side, and just ease ahead into two. And that that's how he I think he made most of his moves, at least that I saw, um sitting in the in the runoff at turn one. Is that how would cool. And in, in, in race two and race three, when I was watching him Sunday, he was making moves. And what, according to uh, NJMP's social media guy, by the way, that second complex there with the double carousel is called the octopus. <laughs> I I don't know if that's that's an amazing. <laughs> that's what name. he said. I love it. In the, the octopus, he was very good. I mean, it was he was making moves down. I there. mean, I can see that looking at the track map. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, I guess. But that's a hard making moves. I mean, it, it passing there, and it's so hard to pass there. I'm just gonna start calling the track the cephalopod. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, that's that's pretty fantastic. Now let's slide things over here to Indie Pro 2000 before we get to our guest. Um, Hunkos got their first win of the season. First win, obviously, for Hunkos Hollinger. Uh, what do we make of the overall weekend for Indy Pro 2000 and the, I'll say, very eh, kind of car count? I'm a little worried about car count. I mean, we had 10 cars all weekend. One, it's not that exciting as a fan to watch and you know certainly as a, as a photographer looking for you know action to photograph they span out so quickly and you had a couple of little battles here and there but you know a lot of they fanned out pretty quickly they spaced out pretty quickly the guys who won those races did it in you know pretty dominating fashion i don't think any of them were close but i should look before i like totally say something wrong as i often do um Race two wasn't close. Petrov. Whoa. Yeah, that's true. Petrov got in the wet and absolutely ran away. Dominated that race. Like 10 seconds on McElroy. Yeah. Just uh, ran. Race, race three was McElroy over Eves by 12 and a half. Race Jeez. two was Petrov over McElroy by 15 and a half. And race one. I was gold over McElroy by under a second. So McElroy was catching up to gold. So the so McElroy had two seconds and a first. That's a really good he weekend. Yeah, really good weekend. He had, um, a, he had an excellent weekend. But cool for gold to get his first win. Obviously, it's a big deal for him to get his first RTI win too. And I think it says a lot about the series where you've got you know six races between USF 2000 and and Indy Pro 200 Indy Pro 2000. And 50% of those wins were first-time race winners. I think that's a that says a lot about the talent in these series. But yeah, RTI or uh, Indy Pro, I'm a little worried about car counts. And there were maybe two Indy Pro drivers one off. who didn't go though, and yeah. and they're already projecting 18 next year. I think they've got a lot of guys coming up too from. USF, and I think some F4 drivers are probably going to come over, but I think Hunter Yeeney wasn't there because he was at Spa with F3 um, as, with Saru's. Uh, somehow, I don't know, uh, Hunkos has had a weird week. Salary made that announcement, their Indy Lights driver, that he wasn't going to, that he was leaving. Um, 
they seem to pin the blame on Hunkos for that, even though he's had pretty good results. I mean, he thought he was fourth in the championship when he left. Um, and then Friday, like on the race weekend, Friday, um, Manuel Suleiman um, announced that he wasn't going to be continuing the season with Hunkos either in Indy Pro. And then Kiffin had a terrible weekend, too. I don't know what happened at all with him. I just think he had a race car that just did not agree with him. I mean, it looked like it was tight. It looked like he couldn't get it to go where he wanted it to go. He just didn't look comfortable in the car. Something was, yeah, something was wrong there because Kiffin has really been very good in Formula Regional Americas this year. He's the points leader. He's got five wins, I think. I mean, he's been really good, but I don't. It was it was a bad weekend for him. He was spinning um, in Q2 for Indy Pro. Um, it was right when the rain started. So it was the first wet tire action of the weekend Sunday morning, and both Funkos went straight off. Yeah, straight just, off. It was just. It went at the same I mean, place too at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I was over there in turn six, and I was turning my camera on because all the cars were coming by on their first lap out, and I'm thinking, it's a warm-up lap, nothing's going to happen. I'm like trying to get, you know, I'm going to get a little shot of all the cars coming by, and a marshal goes, whoa! (laughs) (laughs) And I I pulled the camera up really quick, and there's two Yunkos just sitting on the grass. I'm like, what happened? How do you go into the grass? It's the out lap. They just yeah. He just, it, 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 I don't think he was just happy with that race car. It just it seemed like he was fighting it, and he wasn't he wasn't comfortable just looking at him looking at how the car was performing with with him behind the wheel. It just didn't look right. But you know, you make a good point though. This is a very un-Hunkos season for Hunkos. Normally, you you know, Hunkos is. I don't want to say the Penske of Road to Indy, but they're kind of the Penske of Road to Indy. I mean, they've won the championship three in the last five years, right? Yeah, I mean, they are a powerhouse in Road to Indy, and it's just, you know, everyone can have an off year. I mean, you know, hell, look at Andretti in, in IndyCar, right? Andretti's having a couple of off years. Penske's had a bad year. So, you know, it's, you know, Ricardo was there this weekend. You know, you had, you know, one of your guys win. I think it was, you know, I think Gold had a pretty decent weekend outside of his win. So, you know, it's a new partnership with Hollinger. Um, obviously, Hunkos has announced that they're, you know, moving back up to, to IndyCar, um, you know, you know, in the in you know, the coming, you know, coming year. So, I wonder how, them. I mean, how many of their guys are coming from their road to Indy program to go work on their IndyCar program? That's a good question. And if they're going to pull out of it. Yeah. I I don't see Ricardo necessarily abandoning the road to Indy program. If for the only reason of it is a built-in pipeline of not having to fight for name drivers. Close driver Academy. Pretty close. 
you know, that's it, it seems like so long as you can make the financials work. And again, it's that's the answer to every question. But if you can make the money work, I don't see any reason to abandon the road to indie program. But I'm also not spending all the money on that. I don't think they will. And I think also it's still like we talk like, is part of the thing with Force Indie is doing is that they're giving mechanics the opening into IndyCar at the ground level. And I think Hunkos was doing that too, that they're saying, hey, you know, we need more people for us in IndyCar. And they can go, hey, we've got guys who've been working in Indy Lights for a couple of years now. They're experienced. They know what they're doing. We can bring them up. We don't have to go steal them from Andretti or Ganassi or Penske or, you know, some other program. Well, I, I think it makes for a perfect segue here, talking about the potential future that comes into the Road to Indy program and moving their way up to the NTT IndyCar series. Let's take a listen now to our interview that we did just a, an hour or so ago with race two winner from New Jersey Motorsports Park, Mr. Miles Rowe. Uh, this fantastic kid very nice family they were they were super cool the entire weekend the whole team was quite frankly uh but i kind of got that vibe from all the teams that you know the team personnel and all that we encountered uh but yeah here it is take a listen the one and only mr miles Rowe. Um, 
And yeah, it's just been it's been stellar. That's that's what's up, man. That's what's up. I, again, I want to thank you for taking your time to join us today. Um, speaking of your win at New Jersey, I I, I do have a I, I guess a bit of a more sensitive question. So with with any sort of first win that a driver gets, regardless of what series they're in, a lot of times it's a feeling of relief, and you know sometimes actually a lot of times at that point you know the floodgates just open, the wins stack up. That's where you know championships can happen. But with 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 the magnitude and the significance of this victory, how how does that feel for you? Like, Talk us through it, man. What, what, what does that make you feel? Do you still feel that pressure? Do you feel, do you feel that relief? Is it a mix? What's it like? So, um, the pre- there's no pressure. Oh, let me back up. Obviously, there's pressure, but, but me, myself, I, I feel like I handle it pretty well because I, I, I've trained myself to, to sort of think of whatever the task is at hand in the present, to just focus on that and to do it the best that I possibly can um, in that moment. Um, and I've been thinking that with me for a long time, including through this racing season. So with the pressure, it's just about being able to take yourself away from that and focus on what you actually need to do and then knowing your ability and doing it. Um, so it's the same thing as it was before as it is after this first win in terms of pressure. Now, the, the emotion of the relief that I felt um, and just the joy and, and, and just, you know, being able to actually see, um, like, all your all your hard work and all your perseverance kind of like gets you to to another stepping stone in your journey. I mean, like I've never felt um, an emotion this strong in my entire life uh, when I crossed that finish line. I mean, as soon as the car hit the finish line, it was it was so unreal. Like like how I felt. I mean, I yeah, I, mean, I didn't tell anybody this actually, but I was so like emotional when I crossed the line that. I, I wasn't even, I didn't even pay attention to where I was driving, like, I, I don't know if you can see in the video, but I kind of went off the track, <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, like, I, I gotta get back on the track, and everything, like, I was in the marbles, like, out wide and everything, and it was super funny, uh, honestly, at that point, man, I don't think anybody can blame me for that, that was, uh, on, the real, on the real, man, that was, that was a hell of a drive, um, I, I, I do just want to say, like, it's, it's really cool seeing more. It's really cool seeing more people like us get involved, really involved in the sport, and not not only succeeding but like thriving. It's 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 the coolest thing to see. So keep keep on doing what you're doing because you're doing a great job at it. Um, now, thank you. thank you. Hey, no problem, man. No problem. So moving on to the uh, to the race weekend itself. So we saw that. Conditions over the weekend, they were changing all the time. So how, and not even just for your the race that you won, like the race one, two, and three, and as the weekend went on. So how did you and your team adapt to that? Yeah, so we really, the team as a whole, we did a really good job at, at you know, knowing what to do when, or we do a really good job at adapting. You know, racing is a sport with so many variables changing constantly right um and and the team did a really good job at at analyzing you know what could happen you know and what might not happen um in this case for for race one two and three it was about what the weather was going to do whether it was going to rain whether it wasn't whether it was going to rain lightly whether it was going to rain hard 
whether it's going to rain and then the track is just going to be wet, whether it's going to sprinkle and it's going to be wet and then dry out in the end sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Try to figure out if you put in early, don't put in at all, put in late. Uh, and and kind of like taking it, you know, as they say, by the ear. Um, whatever, whatever happens, you know, you, you change what you have to do to, to bring out the best results. And, and that's just all it was, you know, having the awareness of, of that and then just having, you could say, the, the drive maybe or, or just the, the awareness and consciousness of what you need to do. And like I said before, what you need to do in that moment and, and just executing it accordingly to the best possible way you can. Um, and especially in race two, you know, we, we did that properly. Uh, I think one thing that contributed to that was was tire management. Uh, there was a lot of tire management issue because the situation at hand in race three, in race two was that um, the track in this situation it rained before and then it stopped raining, but the track was wet. That's uh, where slicks just weren't an option at one point. Um, so you go out on wet tires, and some people pit for dry tires. Problem was with the times weren't quick enough to really catch up uh, to the guys on wet tires. But also it was the sort of race where if you stay on wet tires, your wet tires, you know, were degrading decently fast depending on you know how you're driving the car, how smooth, how smooth you're driving the car. Right, right. And you you really seemed to make that work as the race went on, because as as it was drying up, bro, you got faster, man. Like uh, folks were looking for folks were looking for water, they were looking for time, but you just Especially in the last half of that race, you just looked like you had it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just, you know, using my butt, feeling the track under me, you know, using... It's real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, using all your vision, you know, knowing exactly, like, the temperature of the track and everything if possible, um, the wind and everything, so that, you know, you could, you could execute accordingly and also, you know, protect your car and protect your tires, most importantly, in this situation. And... Uh, it was just about, you know, driving really, really smooth so that you're not, you know, spinning the tires or, or overdriving in terms of on the exit of the corner where you may be, like, loose and, and spreading the tires like that. Um, and, and, yeah, that, that was how you how you were supposed to win that race. Um, and, and you got it right, Chris. You got it right. You got it right. You did it well. That's, that's what's up. Uh, so, let's see. We'll move a little bit away from the series seriousness of racing, I guess you could say at the moment. So, let me ask you this. Do you, do, do you happen to do any sim racing for fun? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I love to train on the sim and, and get on the races and things. Uh, it's, it's definitely good, you know, because in the sim, like they all say, you can massively mess up, but you, know, you can still, you have all your lens attached and you'll be like, okay, I don't have to do that. We're not turn the car kind of thing. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I, I try to do a, a good amount of sim racing. Not too much though, because you know nothing really beats you know, real life. Right. Um, but yeah, I get on it for sure um, a couple times a week and, and try to you know, work on my skills and techniques. But I'd say with the simulator, I, may, I mainly get on there with with you know really something in mind of what I want to work on, something I want to yeah. fix, or something I want to improve on, sort of a thing. So I'll do sim races and things like that. But they're mainly like I'm on there thinking about okay, what technique am I working on in this race? Am I working on starts? Am I working on you know brake release? Am I working on um, like throttle app or like tire management things like that? Um, right. Yeah. So unfortunately, you say I you, you ask if I get on there for fun. I, I guess I could say I get on there, but, but more so for for you 
know, practice and, and development and let's go. But yeah, sometimes I'll get on there for fun. Sometimes, you know, I use iRacing a little bit and I'll run on like, you know, the pro trucks and oh my gosh, I love the rally cars on iRacing. Like, <laughs> like, I definitely hope I can do rally car one day for sure. So iRacing gives me a good outlet to like, you know, really try that out and, and try to race some people. And, and yeah, I, I do have a lot of fun racing the trucks and the rally cars and the dirt. That's what's up. That's yeah. what's up. If you ever look on the... Uh, want to try to delve a little bit deeper into some iRacing series, we might be able to recommend you some. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. uh, Especially the pro trucks. We know we got some folks who really love it. Yeah. Hi, I'm the pro truck guy around here. I love it. <laughs> Man, it would be a dream come true to be able to, to hop into a jumpy truck race with you and just rip the track up. That sounds like my kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. we got to set it up one day. Oh, heck yeah. I'm here for it. We'll see yeah. if we can make that happen. No, really. We're, we're going to see if we can make that happen. <laughs> um, all right. So, let's see. Uh, so, that's that's a lot of the racing stuff that I had in mind. Let's, um, so, you know we're pizza at the Pagoda. Usually, with any podcast that we start yeah. off, we always ask, what are you drinking? So, it, it can be anything. It can be water. It can be soda, tea. It can be alcohol. Whatever, whatever, whatever suits your fancy, man. So, Miles, what are you drinking tonight? You know, I think it, I, I swear I didn't prepare for this, I swear, but I went out with my girlfriend and we, we got some food, and you know, we were actually going out with some friends tonight, so I decided to not, you know, we're in New York City, and I was about to get a meal that was $15, and then by the end of the night, I was going to probably spend 40 50 dollars so I was like, I'll just get like a smoothie, because she saw a smoothie kind of thing, so, so I ordered this juice, this juice drink, and I'm actually drinking like a beet, carrot, apple, ginger kind of mix juice. So that actually doesn't sound too bad. It's good. No, 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 it's really good. It kind of tastes like orange juice a little bit with a little kick because it's a ginger, you know? Yeah, actually. Okay. <laughs> Um, my girlfriend you know, showed me that, and it's really good. It's 
just doesn't, it's not, it never works out to be a good outcome. Is that something that you keep in the back of your head of just let's be really, really patient with this development program? For me, for sure, because, I mean, I, I'll, I'm going to say it all the time, but yeah, I've been out for four years, and it's just, you can think of yourself as, as being however good you think you, you are, like, but the reality of the situation is, is that you're in a competition, uh, you're in such a tight competition that you have to be realistic in the fact that not everything's going to go your way, sort of a thing, and and it, it takes a lot of patience um, and discipline to really just like stay where you are and, and, and try to learn as much as you can, um, so that you you you're prepared more than the people that you'll be running against in the jump you make, sort of a thing. Um, so it's definitely not good. Of a, it's definitely not necessarily the greatest, or you can say the most realistic plan to try to make a jump into something where just naturally because of that big jump those other people are just more prepared than they are the goal is to just have you know the goal is to be the most prepared because that's all you can really do um is control your variables and to make a big jump so fast is not the way to control all your variables uh, to me i, I if this is going to be my last shot to talk to you tonight here, I have to ask this question. I, I was talking to your mom on Sunday in the paddock, and she said to me that if you lined up 33 IndyCar drivers, she could pick out one of them and know who they are. The rest of them, she has no idea. That one driver is willpower. Uh, if it was not for... Uh, I know you will humble brag, so I'll do it for you. You whipped Will Power's ass at GoPro Motorplex, is my understanding of your discovery story here. Can you tell us that one a little bit here? Because we have a huge Will Power fan in the room, and we love every chance we get to, to hear a, a Will Power's getting beat story. I'm the Will Power fan. I'd love to hear it. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, I was at, so this is, it was just kind of meant to be. So this is this is basically the story of, of my first time, you know, getting and getting and driving my go kart. Actually, I was with um, I was with my friend Henry Henry Grass, and we we took a trip up to the GoPro Motorplex. This trip ended up being a, a very normal thing, as this was the only track, the only good track nearby that we could really find to, to practice at. Um, because in Atlanta, the only decent kart track you had to be a member and pay like of course like tons of money. So this was the first of many trips up to the GoPro Motorplex and I took it with my friend Henry Grass. Um, and after getting the car, driving it a few times, and it, was, and it turned night at this point, and there's lights on the tracks, so they still had night sessions and things about after 6 p.m., after 7 p.m. And um, so I went out on track, and I see this helmet, and I'm like, this looks way too familiar, kind of a thing. And, you know, he's kind of tall, kind of a thing. And I'm like, no way. And then I recognize the suit. And I'm like, no way. And then realizing it's, well, I think I saw it on his part, or like, maybe I saw something on his suit that said power, I can't remember, it was a little vague. But I remember like realizing, okay, this is Will uh, behind the wheel. And so, and I, I'm realizing it because he passed me, you know, like, it's my first time in the go-kart, he passed me, like going down the front street or something, got better exit speed, obviously, you know. Um, and then, so we drove around for a couple laps, and then he, he slowed down and then let me pass him again. And then, um, 
Welcome back here. We're uh, absolutely thrilled that Miles was able to take a little bit of time out of his schedule here. Just moved into a new apartment in New York City. He was telling me he went from a fifth floor to a first floor. Fifth floor walk up to a first yeah. floor. So That's he was luxury living in New York City. I was going to say he was he was excited that he didn't going to have to do the steps every day. <laughs> yeah, now he's going to spend more time in the gym. Ah, something tells me the Penske guys are going to make sure that happens one way or the other. But, Ben, you have a, a pretty cool story here on, on Miles and, and his dad over the weekend as well. Yeah. Um, Friday night when Saturday morning, we were, Mike and I were leaving the hotel, actually ran into Miles' dad in the elevator leaving, going to the track, which we didn't know at the time. We kind of just thought he was some guy who worked with Force Indy because he had the shirt on. We kind of went, oh, I guess he's a team person. And I got to the track and, you know, fully geared up, camera, vest, badge, all that. Saw him again and had another chat with him. Found out he was Miles' dad. And, you know, went on our merry ways. And actually got to talk to him right before race two, before Miles' win. And in our conversation about, ooh, what's going to happen? It's the rain, yada, yada. He looked at me and he said, you know what they say, rain is the great equalizer. Anything can happen. Okay, so I go off to, to shoot the race. He's up there in the fan stands with, I want to say, 20 people all decked out in Force Indy gear. Um, and every time I can see Miles coming by, he's coming by and he's coming by. First, I don't know, five, ten laps, not much is happening. And then he starts, every time he comes by, he's in front of another car. He's in front of another car. He's in front of another car. From another car. And I'm looking at the timing and I'm going, wow, he's P5. He started P10. This is a good race. And they're getting, they're kind of, you know, they're getting excited. They're kind of starting. They're all standing up now. They look excited. And I check it again the next lap, and he's P3. And now they're really going crazy. Now they're excited because now he's in the podium places. And comes by the next lap. And Kiko had built up a bit of a lead. But after the race, he said that he had really worn those tires out, those wet tires. And Miles just... As the track was changing, as the tires were changing, he really found a way to keep that speed up and to keep those lap times up. So he started tracking, he starts tracking down Kiko, and now, like, there's an entire grandstand of Miles' family just getting more excited and more excited and more excited. They're standing up and they're jumping, they are jumping up and down and cheering. They're watching their guy just have this absolutely incredible race. And on the last lap, into turn five, here comes Kiko, and here comes Miles right on his gearbox. I mean, he is right there. 
they're cheering and they're cheering. He goes down the hill, and they can't quite see him. I can just make out what's happening. And back up the hill, out of the octopus, here comes Miles in P1, down across the line, wins the race. And I look over, and they are going absolutely bananas. Jumping up and down, hugging. I mean, they are going crazy, as they should. Because he just he just won a race in spectacular fashion, and comes back to come back around on the cool down lap. Comes by them, arm out the arm out the car, pumping his fist, celebrating. I get the picture and I go, man, I gotta get to the podium for this. I gotta get there. So I come running out the gate, through the fence, off the track, and I start sprinting across the paddock through the garage. And I mean, I'm, it's, I don't know, maybe a quarter of a mile from turn five to the podium. And I'm running. And who starts running right alongside me? Miles' dad. And he's looking at me and pointing and smiling and cheering and going, What did I tell you? It's the equalizer. That is the equalizer. Some guy on a scooter, I have no idea who he was, pulls up. Tells, tells Miles' dad to get on. He rides off on a scooter with both his arms in the air, with this huge grin on his face, pointing at me and smiling. We come all the way back to the podium. They're celebrating the podium. His mom brings up the trophy to him. Brings up his P1 trophy. They do the interview. We come up after the race. After all the celebration, uh, a few of us came up there. And, you know, congratulating them. And Miles' dad, I have never seen a happier person in my life. He was absolutely just ecstatic. And I really don't know that I'm ever going to have an experience that is going to hit that level unless I watch, like, a friend of mine win the Indy 500. Because that's, yeah. what it, that's what it felt like to be there and to be, like, this tiny part of something it felt so weirdly personal for me, even though I known that guy for like, I don't know, a day. It was like, man, this is incredible. And then as I'm driving home, you know, the stories are popping up, all this stuff. And you start realizing the magnitude of what we saw. Like, this is a huge milestone in IndyCar's push for diversity. This is this huge event for us. Or the sport that we love and it's like man you were there to watch that to see that happen and to be this teeny tiny part of it there to share in that moment and that is probably one of the best experiences of my life that just to be in that moment and share that to be able to say that i was there to see that happen yeah and i'll echo that i was in turn one at the runoff of turn one and yeah, you know, I kept seeing the same thing, and I was like, "Hey, he's he's moving up, he's moving up, he's moving up." And I was listening to race control on my headset to you know see what, hear what was going on with the race, because um, that gives me a good idea of kind of what to shoot. And all I hear is "new leader," but they don't say the number. All I hear is "new leader," and then nothing. I was like, "Oh, maybe they got confused." And checkers come out, and there's a hill at the start finish line, and I see that orange force indie in front and i'm losing my mind in turn one i am the only person out in turn one and i'm losing my mind and 
I got in my car and I drove back to the paddock as fast as I possibly could. And, you know, to see that win and to be a part of that. And, you know, Miles' dad could not have been the nicest person. His son just did something incredible. And for him to take the time to talk to Ben and I, people that he just met that morning, people that are just photographers from, you know, a small, you know, independent, you know, racing network to talk to us and be like, yeah, you, I'm so glad that you guys were here. Like, go talk to your kid, man. Go celebrate with your kid. <laughs> you know, you, it's the fact that they were gracious enough to even, you know, let us into the moment. And I feel like, you know, we were part of that moment. And it means a lot to me, too, um, just to be there and to see it and to witness it and to say, hey, look, you know, the first time an African-American has won any IndyCar sanctioned series, I was there and I saw that and I witnessed history and felt like I was a part of it. And it, it you know, coming from, you know, from me, you know, it doesn't mean much, but I know, I know it means so much to the sport and so much to his family and so much to him. And, and for him to two days later to come talk to us and to have that great conversation that he had with us, it just says a lot about who he is and, you know, you know, whatever he does in his career, he's, you know, he's a fantastic person. And I'm so glad that, you know, we got to talk to him and, and share that moment with him. It means a ton to me. I, I'm, I'm an old TV nerd, but I am reminded of a scene from the West Wing. And it, there, it, it's where they introduce a new character in the episode and, and, you know, whatever crisis it is has gone on. And Bradley Whitford looks at, at Dulé Hill's character and he says, you feel that? It never goes away. That's something that it is the greatest thing about getting to cover sports is there's always moments. And for every jerk athlete, every, you know, the horror stories that you hear about athletes behaving badly and whatnot, there are stories of good people having good things happen. And I wish there was a way to make it where the sport was less reliant on the concept of the pay driver because we would end up with a lot more stories and a lot more families like the Rose and the sport as a whole would be much better off for it. Uh, but with that, I think we should uh, start to wrap things up here. Um, and, and speaking to that point, my final kind of topic question, whatever I'll pose to you guys, we're seeing a potentially huge influx of drivers coming from Formula One and especially the junior formulas heading in towards the road to Indy and hoping for IndyCar rides. Is that a bad thing for the road to Indy? And is there should there be some concern at Anderson Promotions about the future of of what the Road to Indy program looks like? I think there should be. Yeah, there should be. Because I mean, it's it's great that we're getting 
drivers and we're getting drivers both who are in the RTI series as well as the uh, the for, the FIA sanctioned Formula series. I, th I think it's great that they want to come to IndyCar, but I, I would feel better about it if there were more teams to house them as well as housing drivers from the RTI series because at that point it's like all right I'm in the road to Indy series I'm here to get into IndyCar well what in the hell is the point because they because we're getting more drivers from Formula 1, Formula 2, 3 and 4 and the like and it, it's like okay where do these guys go yeah. I, I I think it, the math, right? Go ahead. The Formula Two season is about as much as it costs to run an Indy car program. Yep. With some you know, plus or minus a couple hundred thousand probably. But those guys already have the money. Mm hmm And you know, the the rows of the world and the home coasts of the world aren't gonna be able to compete with, you know, oh. You know the dams and the you know the the, the F two teams, you know the Carlins and you know you know Luke Carlin right? He took his Indy Lights program and said, "I'm going to run an Indy car program," and it hasn't been super successful with it. But yeah, I think it's a concern because the money that is in European racing dwarfs what's available in the RTI ladder, and the sport runs on money and you know the, these good stories that you know that we just talked about you know there's not going to be a lot of them if you've got you know russian oligarchs bringing their you know <laughs> billions over and pumping their kids into you know into these programs because unfortunately money always talks in racing uh, yeah and I read something that, that uh, Guan Yu Zhou, who is the one of the Alpine Driver Academy guys in F2, is looking to get into F1, and I don't think he's going to get it this year. But the report was that he had three million in sponsorship to bring. Thirty million. If you're Coin Racing, uh, you don't turn that down. You just don't. Because even if he brings, say, a third of that, you still don't turn that down. A, a third of that number funds a Penske-level car. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Funds yeah, a two-car team at coins level. You just don't turn that down. And so a guy like, say, I don't know, Kirkwood, we're talking about, oh, where's Kirkwood going to go? Where's Kirkwood going to go? And it's like... Why are we having this conversation? He's the second in the championship right now. There's three, I think, three uh, road rounds left. Plenty of time for him to win it. He's been dominant on the road courses so far. Why are we having this conversation about where's where's Kirkwood going to go? Where's he well, going to go? He's going to be. Then the we're having a conversation about the guy in fifth potentially getting an in, in, an Andretti ride in IndyCar. Because he's the only one with that level of money. Right. And where do we... I think the thing that also needs to be kind of mentioned, unfortunately, is that 
and in, in Europe and in Asia, the F1 is the pinnacle. It's what everyone wants to be sponsoring. It's what everyone wants to be attached to. IndyCar is not that in America. NASCAR. Yeah. In fact, I remember going with the China. I remember when Indy had that race in China scheduled only for it to be booted off the schedule before they even came close to racing on it because the Chinese government thought they were getting another F1 race. And then when they realized that it was something completely different than F1, <laughs> they immediately kicked it off. They're like, nope, not happening. Boom, done, dead. And for anyone you happen. It's just, it's just really tough for American drivers. And that's what IndyCar, that's its root, right? We want those homegrown, we want the New Gardens, we want the Connor Dailies because they're great for IndyCar. Right? And we want the foreign talent, but we want it to be Indy talent, right? We want guys like Rasmussen in um, Indy Pro, who's on USF, he's I mean, he's doing really well in Indy Pro. I think he's the points leader, if I'm not mistaken. That's the guy you want coming up as a guy who's not the American driver. Say, hey, this guys he's been through the road to Indy. He's an Indy driver. He's not Lundgaard coming from who's been in Europe his whole career. And is now going, oh, wait, I can come over here and race. And I got plenty of money to take care of this. I could just come race over here and take this RLL seat. And, and, and if you look at Lundgaard, at right, he's the third guy in the Alpine Driver Academy. They're not getting rid of Ocon anytime soon, and they're sure as hell not getting rid of Alonso anytime soon. So he's doing the same thing that other drivers are doing. It's like, well, where the hell do I go race? The problem is, and it's a good problem to have, is that the top levels of motorsport are fluffed with talent. They are simply full of talent. F1's never going to add another team because the, the new Concord agreement has pretty much made that impossible with having to essentially pay off the other teams in F1 to even get your foot in the door. So you're never going to have more than 20 drivers in F1. You can only have so many cars in IndyCar and, you know, we're going to run up right up against that limit next year. You still have the guys who are trying to do their one-offs for the 500. You're, so we're going to have a bunch of bumping for the 500, which is great. Everyone loves it, but doesn't help those teams trying to do that one-off when they're just, all of a sudden their one-off is competing with the likes of well-funded former Formula 2 drivers. What other top-level racing is there? I, I think... There's, there's not a there's, lot. I think well, the the historic failed F1 driver pipeline has always led to WEC and to IMSA. It's starting to move to IndyCar, and, and Grosjean is by no means a failed Formula One driver. He's got a number of race starts and podiums, but the former F1 driver to IndyCar ladder, Ericsson is that. What, two seasons with Sauber? And, and it's Sauber, so... Or Alfa Romeo, Sauber. So you can't, he can't be expected to get podiums. 
But he came in, and then Leclerc came in and whipped him his one year at Alpha. And he went to IndyCar, and now he's fifth in the points. And we're going, man, Agnesson's looking at a race seat next year, maybe, in addition to Weck. Yeah, he's looking at one for 23. Well, but also think of all the other guys that are on the grid already that at some point in their career were F1 drivers. There's a lot of them. It's a lot. But, and you also look at IndyCar, the career of an IndyCar driver is much longer than pretty much any other top-level motorsport. I mean, Dixon is in his 40s. Uh, Will Power is in his 40s. Jimmy Johnson wants to go past when his deal expires in 22. He wants to be racing 23 and beyond. Elio is, you know, has had a, you know, a 20-something career. You know, RHR is not, you know, even though he's most likely out at Andretti, he's not going anywhere. He he still wants to ride, you know, still wants to ride. He still wants to, you know, be competitive. So you've got a full grid as it is and pretty much guys saying, I ain't leaving. You can't make me leave. And as long as I'm winning and bringing money, I ain't going anywhere. So you got that. You got a pipeline of talent that's going, hey, you promised me a scholarship, you know, for the guys who win the thing. You've got guys in F3 and F2 looking and going, hey, I can race over there. And then you've got IndyCar's biggest talent recruiter and Romain Grosjean looking at his old F2 buddies <laughs> going, hey, come on over here. This is a great place to race. It, it, it's a good problem to have, but it's a problem that pushes the Kirkwoods and the Malukases and the Lundquists and the Rasmussens and the rings of the Arta, you know, Road to Indy Pipeline. So what are they going to do? Well, and particularly when they get that scholarship and then they have to produce in that first season or they're out of a ride. Like, we've seen some guys that have had that problem. Like, uh... Demello, I think Matos. Like, there's been some guys in the last decade that probably, if they'd gotten a long enough look, could have been productive at the IndyCar level, but just didn't have the ca- the checks to cash at the end of the day to get that enough time, long enough time, and get enough seat time to be productive. And it's and- it's a bummer, but it's also racing reality. And it's racing since its inception has been. A rich person sport. So it's like, you can't really, it's not a problem you can fix, I don't think. I, I agree with you at, at a surface level. It's a crappy problem to have. And I think, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but I think I heard Jimmy Broadbent say this once. And, and I, I thought it was him, but I could be mistaken. But he, he was positing on one of his streams that the best racing talent in the world the person that you could pick up and put in a race car and they would be the best driver in the world. We might never find them because of the barriers to entry of the sport, the accessibility of the sport. We are we have probably not seen the truly best driver in the world, right? Best I think marathon that's a reasonable statement. Best marathon runners? Yeah, anyone can can go run. We can find the best marathon runner in the world. We can probably find the best soccer players in the world best baseball players probably if they're exposed to it best race car drivers there is somebody in the world who is 
a phenom that we'll never see in a race car. I think part of the issue as well is that any car is the perfect solution to the we have too many F1 guys, too many Formula 2 talents. It's lower cost. It's nearly spec in a lot of ways. And it has a lower barrier to entry in terms of you don't need to have 40 super license points. Uh, let's if you were designing an alternative to F1, you would design any car in a lot of ways. Man, That's man. why we have this issue. I know, I know we got to wrap up the show, but I'm about to get super salty about the split again. So we probably ought to. Well, <laughs> I, I, I think Ben walked that line where he's like, IndyCar is about American drivers, the New Gardens and the Dailies. And I'm pretty sure Tony George said those same words in 1993-1994. Where there was too much money in cart and they needed to have something that was cheaper for the American talent to come up in. Well, here's it, that was the the point that I was going to make is will foreign money be the tobacco money of this generation? IndyCar racing got very high on the hog on the backs of the tobacco companies. At one time, every car on the grid in IndyCar and F1 back in the late 1980s, carried some form of tobacco branding. When that money disappeared, there was no plan to replace it. That's what ultimately doomed CART. And that goes back to their colossally stupid mismanagement. Are we going to see a similar problem a decade from now or two when we're back to seeing 60, 70 cars trying to qualify for the 500 and the foreign guys go, this isn't worth the money anymore. It's not a guarantee. That's why we need to have the American rely the reliance on American money on American drivers because when those foreign guys pull out who's going to support Indy? The people who live in Indy. Indy Hoosiers are going to support it. People who live um, in, in California and get to go to Monterey and Long Beach, they're going to support it. People who live in Texas are going to support it. People who live in Iowa are going to support it. That's why Hy-Vee and Iowa are so important to IndyCar is that they're building that, that support that, hey, we're a partner. We're not leaving. We're in IndyCar. We are part of IndyCar. We are here to support the series as an American brand. I believe Verizon said the same thing until they got a new CEO. Uh, <laughs> with with that, though, I, I think we should probably wrap up the discussion here. Um, I, and there was something that I was going to absolutely get Mike off the handle on about pizza, and I don't remember what it was at this point. But Detroit pizza. Yes, Detroit pizza sucks. You're wrong. It's the best Jeez. thing to come out of Detroit since the Model T. And you cannot change my mind on that. It is the best pizza. 
negative Ghost Rider, but we'll have that fight next week when we're doing our silly season preview here. We should have a fairly good idea by next week, at least most of where the grid is going to be lining up. Uh, we are hearing some things on our end of some drivers that are confirmed without being confirmed and those types of deals. Uh, but we'll give you that whole update coming up next week on the silly season special edition. Uh, that one will be another Wednesday release. We're not going to record on Labor Day, so we'll record that one next Tuesday night. We'll have it out for you Wednesday morning. But with that, we're wrapping things up and getting the heck out of here. This has been a fantastically long show. Uh, my goodness. Yeah. If you're still listening Thank you. I don't know why, but thank yeah, I you. I don't know why either. I've been sitting here running a jumpy truck around Bathurst. I was inspired by Miles, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Well, we're getting out of here then. For Ben Carswell, Christian Jasper, James Watson, Jason Owens, Mike McCullen, my name's Chris Graham. Thank you very much for hanging out with us here on Pizza, on Pizza at the Pagoda. We'll talk to you next week. See you later, everybody. <laughs>